Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. If I can't live free, if I can't live with the same respect as the next man, I don't want to be here, because God has cursed me to see what life should be like. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Tamler, I've been watching a TV show that has as its premise that there is a parallel world that was discovered at some point in history, um, and there is now a door. That door is safely guarded, and very few people know the secret, but one of the things you can do is cross over and visit yourself. There's a character that becomes friends with herself. And I was thinking, would you actually like yourself? Would you hang out with Tamler Prime? Um, yeah, I would do that. Absolutely. I think that I think I'd be fun to hang out with. You'd be, you'd be friends. <laughs> I had I, I had this sneaking suspicion that I would hate myself. Like I would like disdain myself. Well, yeah, but that's you. Like <laughs> I mean, it's just, the variance is just that it's me. <laughs> you're a huge pain in the ass, but I'm like fun loving and kind of cheerful and plucky and, you know. Uh, <laughs> would you jerk yourself off? Is the second question. <laughs> uh, not, yeah, I mean, not, that depends on the phenomenology of the whole thing. <laughs> uh, no, I have a feeling that like I'm, I'm a despicable person and nobody's. Well, I mean, some people have bothered to tell me like you just now. <clears throat> but uh, I just I don't know. It would be interesting to see yourself from the outside, um, or from it's the weird. perspective of another person, or something like that. It's weird because I think I have pretty healthy self esteem. I'm not sure from whence this intuition derives. I just I just think that I would be privy to all of my fakeness and weaknesses, and like I, they would be so salient to me that that it would overwhelm i'm happy to describe all of those things to you in great detail if <laughs> if you need me to. listeners listeners email your contribution to i will say that like i hate seeing myself in pictures and videos and things like that so much that i already know that it feels different from the inside than it does look from the outside so you know, I'm assuming that would just be magnified. I think that's the source of my intuition is that, yeah. that sort of the like the first few times we ever had to listen to our own recordings. Like I just was like, oh, my God, I'm a t- terrible, terrible. Right. Like, yeah. The voice. <laughs> the voice is the least of it. Um, uh, All right. Well, th- well, thank you. That's my sci-fi question. And thank you for letting me open the show. But I think we have more important things to talk about. Well, <laughs> here's my opening question for you. 
be honest. Did you and maybe Vlad organize <laughs> that protest at Lewis and Clark of my stepmother, Christina Hoff Summers? Actually, uh, Christina paid me to organize it. <laughs> she wanted to just drum up some Twitter, some Twitter traffic. Well, <laughs> so I picked up some scrubs from the street and told them to pretend they were Lewis and Clark law students. <laughs> did you buy the Stay Woke jacket? Yeah, yeah. I made a mistake. I guess it's Stay Awake, but they they printed it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So for those of you who don't follow. I mean, right now, like she, uh, there's a New York Times thing on it. There's a, um, you know, all the major blogs and our, and websites that pay attention to such things in our corner of the internet. So um, she, best not, thing that ever happened to her. But <laughs> I mean, you know, like I think she's handled it pretty well too. But these things are always a boon for the 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 people who get protested because if they're protested in this manner. So uh, what happened was, is that she was giving a talk at Lewis and Clark law school. So it's a law school. There's a bunch of videos online of people protesting, but they they called her a known fascist, a known fascist, my stepmother, VBW two time guest, the, the Nana of my daughter, Eliza, a known fascist. Is it? Is this? Does it make you feel weird to discover that she's a fascist? Like, yeah, because it, it says known, so that means <laughs> it's like other people clearly have known it. And uh, before me, I would think I'd be one of the first people I've known her since I was f- four years old. But uh, maybe you're too close to it. You know, <laughs> did Mussolini's stepson know that he was a fascist? Like when when you heard known fascist, did like in a in a sort of a, a Kaiser Suze kind of way, did all of the things like her telling you to go to bed when you were young, like did they start falling together? But she is a fascist. When we like, couldn't play miniature golf that time, <laughs> like we had to keep driving. It exactly. It's like the end of Usual Suspects, like just like boom, 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 <laughs> like all right. these flashes. And then in a wisp, she's gone. So, the, the greatest trick Christina Hoff Summers ever pulled. <laughs> ever pulled. Was pretending that she wasn't a fashion. Was uh, so, so, yeah, like the ringleader was a woman in the Stay Woke jacket that almost seemed like... I mean, I don't think this is possible. I don't think the technology is there. But almost seemed like she was a Russian bot of some kind, <laughs> like designed to inflame campus culture wars, because it was just, it was ridiculous. It was completely ridiculous. And uh, my stepmother had just come to give a talk. She kept asking to be able to give the talk, and then she'd take questions. And then she finally was able to give a small portion of the talk. And then the students demanded that she take questions right away. And the whole thing was a bit of a catastrophe. The dean who was in charge of this sort of stepped in, but not really. And anyway, the worst of the worst consequence of all of this is that people are going to be tweeting to you to ask you if you're willing to admit that free speech is a problem. (laughs) I was expecting a wave of that and honestly i've only gotten a couple like i don't know maybe that we've just uh persuaded the world that we're right about this or maybe like i don't know but it's more like they've realized there's no point in trying there's no point in trying but uh i actually feel like the the tide has turned a little bit on that like the usual suspects will still 
talk about right. how this has spread. But my stepmother, to her credit, Christina, she she kept saying that the majority of the students there were civil. Even the progressive students were civil, the ones who would come to disagree with her, but disagree with her during the Q&A. Right. When, like, uh, and, and my stepmother loves nothing more than when people disagree and to actually have that dialogue. And she was even talking to one of the students who was, I don't know, a Black Lives Matter person who had come to like raise some harsh criticisms of some of the things that she's done. And my stepmother was telling me, she was telling me like, or she was describing this conversation. She said to him, look, like I am open to being persuaded on a lot of this stuff. You could convince me. You know, like that, that's what was unfortunate about these kinds of events is that that kind of dialogue can't happen. And then it becomes this, this inflamed and, and ludicrous thing where it's just impossible not to side with the person who has, who's being shouted down. And is, <laughs> I do think that, you know, the vast majority, no matter where, what your opinion about, Christina is, you know, just thought that this was not uh, not not the right way of handling it. Yeah, I mean, it forces it's there's there's almost a sense in which um, one of the feelings that I have when this happens is that great now you've not allowed me to actually criticize the speaker, right? Like like my you know not the you know whatever uh, your stepmom's views. I'm sure we agree and disagree on various things, but in this case, it just overwhelmed my desire to agree or disagree with her on anything. It was just like, come on. And as you point out, it it is in a very real way stripping people who disagree and want to talk about it, stripping them of the opportunity to actually have that discussion. So, so it isn't it isn't just shutting down the voice of the speaker that you find morally reprehensible, but it but rather even the voice of those who might disagree and do so in a way that could, you know, you could be a pessimist and say, well, I don't think Christina would ever be persuaded by the arguments I present. Maybe, maybe not, but other people might be who are in the audience, and you're stripping away the voice of the people who would want to offer some reasonable critiques by shouting. Yeah, and I've seen her be persuaded on some key issues. Um, so, you yeah. know, so, she's impressionable. You, she's an impressionable woman. Uh, she always has been. She has been since yeah. uh, <laughs> since I've known her. So, yeah. I will say that I have to put in my one obligatory, like, the people who have responded, not, not Christina. She's been really good about this. But this Barry Weiss at the New York Times, when she <laughs> yeah. tweeted about it, called it a modern day auto da fe, like literally comparing it to the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> it, it's just a, a girl in a stay woke jacket and a bunch of the, you know, like little minions that she had. Just it's 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 not that does that also doesn't further any good cause. <laughs> I mean, except yeah, like no. put it the whole thing up for mockery. You know, that's that's right. And I mean, that's I as I was thinking about all of these events, I, there's so much to talk about and there's so much to be unhappy with the state of affairs about everything that's going on. But that's one thing that is an unfortunate consequence is all it does is magnify the responses of your enemies. So it's almost just like a caricature of a real argument 
right? It's yeah. no longer, you know, and I don't think it does any good to call somebody like like Christina a fascist. That's just a stupid use of the word. Well, it, and it just means that like the word just gets drained of all oh, yeah. its meaning. It's, it's, yeah. And as I was reflecting, I realized that the thing that really, really was the most annoying part of the whole whole video that you as you watch it is that the woman who's leading out the chanting is looking at her fucking phone to see what the chants should say next. <laughs> no. And there is a moment, I shit you not, where the next thing she's about to chant is Black Lives Matter. But first she has to look at her phone yeah. to double check whether... And I was like, how do Black Lives Matter if you can't even memorize that fucking line? I think she had to like double check. She's like, wait, Black Lives Matter? Did I? Okay, that's what it says. Uh, there it is. You know, you know? This is totally ad hominem, but I have to say it. I didn't see any black students. Uh, I, no, no, line, no. You know? This, I, I, and, <laughs> you know, again, not an ad hominem. I don't know these people, but this had the look of white privilege. <sighs> Unfortunately, it did. And and I I do say I, I have some measure of sympathy for them because what is true in, in sort of the, the spirit of what you said about, about Barry Weiss's comparison, they seem fairly powerless. I mean, it seemed like a um, – I almost felt sorry for, for the way in which – they think that go, that this is empowering for their cause. Like I think they're kind of misguided about it, and and I, I, I don't know. But just you know, memorize your chance. Like have some self respect. <laughs> like mem- memorize that Black Lives Matter. And you know, I had a thing in my class that was really sort of on the other side of this, really heartening. I, I was talking about this is in my intro to ethics class. It's a big class, and I was talking about flourishing. And the question that was raised was whether you could flourish if you were interfering with somebody else's flourishing. So that was the question that was being discussed in the class. And then afterwards, I got an email from one student saying that she and some of the other students were talking after class, and they wanted to raise this question about even if you're not actively or directly preventing the flourishing of others what if you're part of some systematic form of oppression that that you know so you're indirectly playing a role in impeding the flourishing of others just by being and she said in the the email like a white male you know like as as a white male you might be now it was a very respectful email and she was like i'm probably not articulating this well but i was wondering what you thought about this and and then so I brought it up in class the next day and it was like we you know it wasn't perfect and I couldn't spend the whole class on it but it was like about a 15 20 minute respectful discussion where some students were like yeah I didn't even think of that there's all these things that I just unthinkingly do that who knows in what way they're preventing other people from, from, you know, and it was just like, yeah, this is how this stuff should work, you know, know like know. no, no angry, po- no shouting down, just uh, having some kind of dialogue. Yeah. And, and, you know, anger is allowed and, and, and all that. It's just, I, I, you don't have to endorse opinions that you find morally abhorrent to, to, I think come to a mature understanding that the only way the only way to really deal with this is to either protest in a way that's I don't know, you know, like the nonviolent protests of the civil rights era 
were in some way just a respectful version of of not dialoguing. But you have to have both of those things, the dialogue and then the action. But this action is just like cutting off the dialogue. I don't know how to say it. It's, it is purposefully cutting off the dialogue, which is the lifeline by which the two sides ever have any shot of coming to, to, to an understanding. Yeah, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. No, it's all right. It's doing <laughs> it's right. well, Just Lewis and Clark lost. By the way, if I were Christina, props to her. I mean, I don't know what she was, what was going on in her mind, but I, I think I would have gotten a lot more pissed. I, I know. Like, it's because I'm a man, though. Yeah, it's exactly. Because your first like instinct is to just Burn. oppress a woman. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Christina being a woman and sensitive to that. No, she. I think she handled it really well. I think... That's how I hope I would act. You play their game if you start screaming yourself or you start getting <laughs> yeah, worked up. Yeah. I mean, I think the hard thing was for that Dean. And I still, you know, it yeah. sounds like she probably didn't. Because I think she has an obligation to really stop the disruption and doesn't seem to have. Now, I've, but at the same time, that's tricky. That's hard. So I don't know how you right. do that exactly and what the legal ramifications are. I also find it weird that it's a law school. This seems like yeah. something I would have thought was more of an undergrad stunt than a. Right. Honestly, like if I had the chance to talk to some of those students, I'd, I'd really be interested in what they were thinking, like what they're what's going on because I, I don't mean to vilify them or but i just really am curious as to what what the strategy there it's right. so clearly just you know it doesn't turn my stepmother into a martyr because like uh but it, it it makes people who disagree with her sympathize and it doesn't help so just from a tactical standpoint i, I don't think that from can... from almost a consequentialist standpoint. oh <laughs> On today's episode, nice segue, we are going to discuss probably the most famous critique of consequentialism and utilitarianism out there um, from Bernard Williams, and we'll be doing that after the break. Remember when you used to say, who could do this alone? Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this is the time in the podcast where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for all their support, um, for all those who have written to us, for all those who have engaged in good conversation. Thank you very much. We um, we love our little community of listeners, and and we appreciate everything you send. If you do want to get in touch with us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to us at Very Bad Wizards, at Tamler, and at Peas. You can go to our Facebook group, facebook.com slash verybadwizards. You can engage in discussion on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. You can also follow us on Instagram, although we don't do a lot of discussion on Instagram, which is what makes Instagram 
awesome. <laughs> um, well, so, you don't like the discussion on Reddit and Facebook? No, no, no. I just think that like if you, you want a break from actual discussion, Instagram's a great place to go. Yeah, you know. Um, uh, but it's owned by Facebook anyway. So, as we all so, are, as we all. Uh, if you are willing to support us, and we really appreciate this um, financially or through some of your time um, and hard-earned money, you can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support, and you'll find the various ways there. Um, one, you could shop at Amazon, and it would only take a bit of your time to click through and, and buy something as you would normally on Amazon. You don't get charged anything else, but we get a little piece that's always uh, very nice. Um, you can donate to us via PayPal, a one-time donation, or you can be one of the many hundreds now, growing growing Almost amount of, a thousand. <clears throat> almost a thousand of our Patreon supporters, which we really appreciate. Um, Patreon.com slash wizards. And we've been working on various different levels of reward. Um, are we going to put out, I think we might put out a little video if anybody's interested. We'll see. Yeah, we might put out a video of us and Josh Nob. It's a, it's a historical video. It's yes. actually, so you get to see what we were saying in whatever episode that was. Like Yeah, unedited, ago. right? Unedited, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, ooh, I, don't, I don't know if I like that. Plus, I was <laughs> I, just I, I, coming off my ankle surgery, so I don't know. You, you feel puffy? I, I, don't wa- I, like I didn't watch it. Uh, and, also, yeah. on Patreon right now, we have just opened up the floor for our listener-selected, our patron-selected topic. Um, the way that works is if you're a Patreon supporter, you can suggest topics in the comment feed of the post I just posted, and then our f- beloved, you're all beloved, but our especially beloved $5 and up listeners can will then vote on five finalists that Dave and I chose. And last time we did at least, we got at least three episodes out of this because we got the two-parter on intelligence. We got the Mulholland Drive episode, which I love. I think we got another one too um, the last time we did this. And the previous time, I think we got at least two. So, so right. that's fun. And the more supporters we get, the more suggestions we get. There's a lot of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> a lot of Jordan Peterson. That's okay. You That's know. fine. That's it's fine. fine. <laughs> I was going to say one of my friends is good friends with Jordan Peterson, and and apparently his sole job is to to he views his sole job as keeping Jordan sane. I'm I don't sane. know. I question whether he's doing a good job. Hey, um, <laughs> that's, that's a that's huge liable. segment of our Patreon supporters. So let's <laughs> chill out about. Uh, okay, cut that out. He's a great guy. So thank you, one and all. What, one last thing: we are going to be in San Antonio. Actually, like one of the, you know, probably the sixth or seventh time that Pizarro and I have seen <laughs> each other in person, and right. we are going to be there the weekend of not I guess the weekend after this episode comes out so the 18th 19th something like that of March and maybe that Saturday we could arrange a meetup if enough of you are interested we'll tweet it out maybe we could find a a good bar in San Antonio (laughs) at 11 a.m. not the best very bad wizards time (laughs) but uh, we will have probably you know like the most notable very bad wizard skeptic Sean Nichols uh, we'll yeah, be interviewing yeah. him about 
his... We treat him as a hostile witness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that'll be Saturday the 17th at 11 a.m. All right. All right. Before we get to talking about consequentialism and, um, and normative ethics in general, I want to really quickly say... Um, I don't know. You know, this is it's going to be a downer, but but it was important for me to talk about this person. Uh, I, Timothy Hall was a philosopher who was a Barb Herman student at at UCLA, and I first met him when I was a young whippersnapper at Yale, looking to take philosophy courses because I, I wanted to learn more about about ethics and I, I wanted to study moral judgment. I signed up for normative ethics, and that happened to be the day the the year that Shelley Kagan wasn't teaching it. So I got it uh, assigned to me to be taught by Timothy Hall. And from that moment on, uh, we became fast friends and he more than anybody in all of philosophy taught me what it meant to be a clear thinker. Uh, Tim went on to be a professor at Oberlin college. He was an amazingly sharp guy, patient, kind, super smart he was interested in in applied ethics uh and he was also a libertarian so to have a libertarian at oberlin uh it means <laughs> it means that he was he was capable of expressing some some patience and some willingness to engage in dialogue um tim unfortunately a few months ago took his own life i only found out about it recently and it made me extremely sad um, and as I was reading uh, this Williams essay on utilitarianism, it, it brought back all all of my good memories of being first exposed to some of these ideas from Tim. So I don't know if any of our listeners ever had a chance to meet or know him. If you did, I would love to hear from you um, because that's, I think, what how we celebrate people's lives is communally talk about them. And I haven't had the chance to talk to very many people about it. Um, so I'm going to miss them. But but uh, I thank him for his influence on a whole bunch of students. Hmm. He's, you know, talk to your friends. Don't be like me. Reach out. <laughs> Reach out. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, all right. Well, how do you transition out well, of that? We well, I mean, he did. And we would transition the very way that he would, which is just moving right along. That was something that happened. Like, let's get to the fucking next part of this paper. <laughs> All right. So this is a, a, as I said before the break, probably the most famous critique of consequentialism and utilitarianism out there. It is from Bernard Williams. Okay. So here's, in broad strokes, how I, what I take the sort of the heart of the argument to be. It is... Uh, it, is it a critique of utilitarianism as an attack on our integrity? And to just get one confusion out of the way, like the way he's defining integrity here is not the way that we normally understand it when we say that you know a politician has integrity or a person has integrity, that they're upright, that they're you know virtuous right. in some way. He's talking about integrity as the state of being whole. You know, so like you would talk of a foundation of a building as having integrity or something like that. Um, It is the state of being whole rather than fragmented or fractured. So when he says utilitarianism is an attack on our integrity, he means that it's an attack on our unity as agents or as people, right? That that's what utilitarian 
does. And there's a bunch of ingredients to this critique. Um, and the first really important ingredient is this idea of negative responsibility. Essentially, the, the idea of negative responsibility is simple. If you're a consequentialist, as all utilitarians are, you believe that the morally right action is the one that produces the best consequences. So that's how they evaluate whether an act is right or wrong. So out of that comes this commitment to negative responsibility, which he defines as responsibility for what we fail to prevent from happening. So the like the singer child in the pond case, you walk by the child in the pond, you could save the child, but let's say you don't and the kid drowns. According to Singer, and according I think to most people when they think of that case, you are responsible for the kid's death. Um, certainly according to the utilitarian, because you had the power to save the child and you chose not to so you are responsible in the negative sense for the child dying if you had made you did you did the wrong thing for you did the wrong thing but and you're but not only did you do the wrong thing but i i think what he says utilitarianism is committed to and we're just as responsible for when we fail to prevent something bad from happening, as long as it's in our power to do that, as we are for doing, actively doing the bad thing, right? Yeah. So it's essentially from the consequentialist perspective, you might as well have drowned the kid. Uh, right. Even yes. though, obviously, you didn't have any, you didn't, you didn't, throw him in there but you could have saved him because of your action that kid is dead where he would otherwise be alive how that happened is in some sense not the issue for the for the consequentialist it's i mean the bottom line is when it comes to moral evaluation killing and letting die are the same thing it's yeah i stuck on the word responsible for a second because there is one thing that I, that we can just sort of, I think, uh, sidestep, which is there is a, like a, for lack of a better term, a thick notion of responsibility that many utilitarians wouldn't want to endorse. But all it means here is that you could have done a better action than you did. And because you didn't, you are wrong. And so you don't have to import, uh, notions of, of responsibility and blame that are too too thick here for yeah. because the utilitarianist the util so this is supposed to be a guide to action and if you have available in your whole sort of causal nexus right um, an action that will minimize or maximize the good and minimize the 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 bad then you ought to do that one and when you don't then of course you can be be said to have been wrong. And again, the key point is all that matters from the point of view of moral evaluation is you have these causal levers that can either produce or not produce this state of affairs. It really doesn't matter as long as you have those causal levers. Who does it? That's like right. whether you know somebody else drowns the kid, but you could have stopped it, or whether you drown the kid and you could have stopped yourself. Now, right. this is a point that's been made a bunch of times. Um, but what Williams does that's unique in this is – develop that point to show how 
utilitarianism attacks our integrity as as people. So he uses these two examples, which we'll talk about. Famous examples, Jim and the Indians and George the Chemist. Using those two examples, he argues that utilitarianism alienates us from our moral feelings, from our projects, and our actions. And we identify with our moral feelings, our projects, and our actions, right? Our identity is in large part constituted by our, – our identity as, as moral agents is constituted in large part by our moral feelings and our just personal identity in general is constituted by our projects and our actions. So when utilitarianism forces us to abandon them or reject them at a moment's notice because the consequences demand it, according to Williams, that is literally like tearing us apart – it is fragmenting us as agents. And this is the last thing I'll say. I don't think he connects this final dot, but it's certainly implied and you could connect it, I think. It raises a, a, a kind of possible incoherence of utilitarianism because in order to be a utilitarian, you have to be a moral agent and arguably a moral agent with some degree of integrity. So if we are being fragmented as moral agents by utilitarianism, then we can't be utilitarians. So it, it might even be like a logical incoherence. Now, I don't think he needs that for the critique to be successful, but it would be the final kind of cherry on top if it were successful. Yeah, that's a good point. In reading this, uh, it's dense, but there's so much in here that if anybody, you know, we, there are a lot of people who who. <sighs> of our listeners, especially who, who really identify with utilitarianism. And we've even gotten some people asking us what the big deal, like why we seem to be anti-utilitarian or anti-consequentialist. And it's a really hard question to answer because I think that the view is that you have to be some sort of mystical Kantian if you're going to reject utilitarianism because that's your only option. And I really suggest anybody who is tempted by that view to read <clears throat> this article because I think it does a very nice job of setting the stage for why you can be dissatisfied with utilitarianism as a solution without having to lapse into any kind of weird view on, on what's, you know, on moral rights and principles as, as being Kantian. And I actually really, really enjoyed that part of the, the beginning segment where he's talking about what it is to be consequentialist. And he has a lot of really insightful stuff that maybe we can get to well i think the the biggest point is you certainly to be to reject utilitarianism and consequentialism you are not committed committed in any way to the kantian view your boy at all right at, yeah. that consequences don't matter at all they could still matter a lot but the, and in the fact thing they that do. the con yeah. and, and in fact they do yeah i agree i think anybody agrees that yeah. uh, with that i think that's the whole reason utilitarian seems plausible at all is because we are convinced that of the importance of consequences yeah. the thing that the only thing you have to do to not be a consequentialist or utilitarian is to think that the consequences are the only thing that matters that's right. And so, and I, I, I feel like some of the weaker attacks at being non consequentialist are often sort of like this some, some sort of straw man view that, that you don't care at all what the consequences would be. And Williams, in talking about this, 
has an insight that I, I don't I don't think I've ever thought of before, but I think it must be right, which is you know, it used to be that we thought of all these moral rules as set in stone, as perhaps divine or at least natural in some way that we that we had to follow them. But of course, at some point you run into exceptions, right? You run into situations where, say, keeping a promise would actually really fuck things up. And so because you don't want to fuck things up, you you break your promise, right? You Because you actually think the consequences matter. And he tells this story about how that it makes sense that consequences would creep their way into ethical theory in a very natural way the minute you realize that these are not God-given rules to never be broken, right? The minute you accept that, you have accepted a world in which you can make modifications to those rules or make exceptions, and those exceptions will be motivated by a knowledge of what the consequences are. And perhaps that is how the appeal of having an ethical theory that was solely concerned with consequences might have gotten off the ground. But as I think he shows, at least I'm convinced, uh, you swing the other way too far and you're left with, I think, a pretty empty ethical theory. So let's look at the critique in more detail, the, the integrity attack. Should we look at the two cases? I think we should. Okay. George, who has just taken his PhD in chemistry, finds it extremely difficult to get a job. He's not very robust in health, which cuts down the number of jobs he might be able to do satisfactorily. His wife has to go out to work to keep them, which itself causes a great deal of strain since they have small children and there are severe problems about looking after them. The results of all of this, especially on the children, are damaging. An older chemist who knows about the situation says that he can get George a decently paid job in a certain laboratory, which pursues research into chemical and biological warfare. George says that he cannot accept this since he is opposed to chemical and biological warfare. The older man replies that he is not too keen on it himself. Come to that. But after all, George's refusal is not going to make the job or the laboratory go away. What is more, he happens to know that if George refuses the job, it will certainly go to a contemporary of George's who is not inhibited by any such scruples and is likely, if appointed, to push along the research with greater zeal than George would. Indeed, it is not merely concerned for George and his family, but, to speak frankly and in confidence, some alarm about this other man's excess of zeal, which has led the older man to offer to use his influence to get George the job. What should he do? So the basic idea here is that, that he, if he takes the job, he fixes the problems with his family, you know, helps them. And he, even though he's opposed, morally deeply opposed to chemical and biological weapons, there's another guy there who's probably going to make them more damaging and insidious. So it seems right. I, it's designed to show that the consequences are definitely better for everybody, including including George's family, if he takes the job. That's right. And, and you know, as, as people point out a gajillion times, and as Williams point, points out here, of course, you can use your imagination to try to come up with scenarios in which this wouldn't maximize the consequences. But, but then you're playing a game that has no... <laughs> That has no point. Like, just take at face value that this that there are, in fact, times in which such situations would arise. So then the other case, and then we can talk about them together because they're they're related, but also they have important differences. This is Jim and the Indians. Jim finds himself in the central square of a small South American town. Tied up against the wall are a row of 20 Indians, most terrified, a few defiant. I like the details yeah it's it's nice (laughs) yeah in front of them several armed men in uniform 
a heavy man in a sweat-stained khaki shirt turns out to be the captain in charge, and after a good deal of questioning of Jim, which establishes that he got there by accident while on a botanical expedition, explains that the Indians are a random group of the inhabitants who, after recent acts of protest against the government, are about to be killed to remind other possible protesters of the advantages of not protesting. Um... However, since Jim is an honored visitor from another land, the captain is happy to offer him a guest's privilege of killing one of the Indians himself. If Jim accepts, then as a special mark of the occasion, the other Indians will be let off. Of course, if Jim refuses, then there is no special occasion, and Pedro will do what he was about to do when Jim arrived and kill them all. Jim, with some desperate recollection of schoolboy fiction, wonders whether he can get a hold of a gun and he could hold the captain, Pedro, and the rest of the soldiers to threat, but it is quite clear from the setup that nothing of that kind is going to work. Any attempt of that sort of thing will mean that all the Indians will be killed and himself. The men against the wall and the other villagers understand the situation and are obviously begging for him to accept. What should he do? So the setup of that is kill if if Jim just takes the gun and kills one of the Indians, nineteen of them will live. If he refuses, none of them will live. So I think Williams argues that utilitarianism these are set up such that utilitarianism would say yes to both. Right. And and, and yeah, and I just wanna like say at the outset that this isn't supposed to be you know how you sometimes have these counterexamples to utilitarianism, yeah, yeah, right. like the the magistrate and the mob, yeah. or something like that. These are like not that. intended to be thought puzzles that yes. tap your intuition to show you that consequentialism is wrong. That's right. Yeah. In fact, he thinks that probably it's the right thing to do for Jim to kill one That's of the right. Indians, um, and I don't. He doesn't think that with George, but. Again, that's not the point. The point is to use these cases to raise certain structural issues with utilitarianism. That's right. In that sense, I think that he's being very respectful to the position of the utilitarian, taking it seriously. Yeah. And so one of the things that he does with these is is try to, to, to preempt a lot of the things that people who, who say – who claim to be utilitarian would say, which – for instance, and this is one of the first things he says, well, well, Jim might feel shitty for the rest of his life. Um, and so as a true utilitarian, I have to take that into account. I think Williams does a nice job of saying why those kinds of what he calls squeamishness, um, why that doesn't really matter in the scheme of things, at least not as an input for moral consideration here. Because after all, if you're squeamish because you think it's wrong – then then you're not being a good utilitarian by shooting the person. Um, if you are already convinced that utilitarianism is true and you view your own emotional reaction as some stupid reflex that you have to get over in order to do the right thing, then you yourself would realize that this is a trivial influence on the calculus, right? You're saving 
the lives of 19 people and the only price you pay is some visceral reaction or maybe the shakes after you shoot the gun and that doesn't re- that can't possibly um, outweigh be outweigh the, the consequences on your own account so uh, yeah so i think he, he raises a couple of points about this so the first is and, and what you said at at first is right like if he's not a utilitarian, he still may decide that, like Williams, you know, it's ultimately all things considered the right to do, but he will honor his moral feelings against it. Like, I don't want to be the person, I don't want to actually kill a person. Right. You know, I, I think that that's, there's something deeply wrong about that. But if he is a utilitarian, there's two ways to look at it. One way is to think that as you said, okay, maybe it's like you're a little squeamish about it. The same way you're squeamish if you take your baby to the doctor and the doctor is going to give it a, give your baby a shot. Yeah, I mean, it's understandable that you don't want your mm-hmm. your child to be screaming in pain, but it's not something that should guide your decision in this case. And then another way of looking at it is if you're a committed utilitarian, you want to you want to actively disregard those feelings because right. they're so clearly irrational like these feelings are telling you to do the wrong thing kind of like how paul sometimes regards empathy right like right. this is a feeling that's telling you to do the morally wrong thing so disregard it Right. You know, Just like, as you would have to do like in, you know, when you're, I don't know, jump across a small gap in a in a mountain, you're f- afraid to do it, but you just have to do it. You're like, well, like it's stupid that I feel this way. I wish I didn't. So I'm just going to really try hard to, to overcome my anxiety and do it. Right? It's 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 fairly obvious that that's what. And, and, and I think the idea is that you're being self-indulgent to yeah. even consider this now. This is a good point, by the way, because of the way in which moral psychology treats the emotions associated with non-consequentialist decisions. So on, on sort of the Josh Green dual process model, it is the emotional response, the emotional aversion to pushing someone to their death that actually makes you choose the non-consequentialist answer. And as a utilitarian, understandably, he thinks that this is squeamishness and self-indulgence that we need to get over. But if you believe that the very reason that you are feeling those things is that there is something deeply morally wrong, no, no psychological measure can tease apart whether your arousal levels or your brain activation to harm is a result of the moral belief that you have that this is a wrong thing to do or just your squeamishness. So the same data can be interpreted in two very different ways. They don't, it doesn't solve the problem to know that people are having emotions. So here's the key quote on that that Williams um, gives. He says, The reason why the squeamishness appeal can be very unsettling and one can be un- unnerved by the suggestion of self-indulgence in going against utilitarian considerations is not that we are utilitarians who are uncertain what utilitarian value to attach to our moral feelings, but that we are partially, at least, not utilitarians and cannot regard our moral feelings merely as objects of utilitarian value. 
because our and I think this is the key quote right here our moral relation to the world is partly given by such feelings and by a sense of what we can or cannot live with to come to regard those feelings from a purely utilitarian point of view that is to say as happenings outside one's moral self is to lose a sense of one's integrity at this point utilitarianism alienates one from one's moral feelings now I think it's easier to get this point in the case of George than in the case of Jim. In the case of Jim, you might really think that that's more like the case of bringing your baby to the doctor. You know, right. like, yes, you know, this is going to be tough. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be haunting. But get over it because 19 people will live who otherwise would have died. Right. Um, and at least that has some sort of force. Um, but then with George... Like, you're going every single day of your life to do something you're deeply morally opposed to and that you feel deep shame about, you know, every second of your working day. Um, And you're supposed to just completely squash that down and say, well, those feelings don't matter. They're irrational. My, like, like, deepest sense of what I think morality is all about, that's the thing that starts to fracture you as a moral agent. Right. Um, you know, there's a there's a point that that Williams makes along the way, which I think is is a right one about the appeal of of utilitarianism. Some argue is a deep insight of of morality is some sense of impartiality that other people matter just as much as you do, and that seems to be yeah. the cornerstone of a lot of of our ethical systems, no matter what deontological or or, or utilitarian or or whatever. Um, and that consequentialism is is sort of taking the notion of impartiality and running running away with it so far that you lose actually the persons like right. you actually lose sight of of what it means to be an agent and i you know the the appeal is that in in its place it it gives you a decision rule that is is very easy um to you know to calculate but in fact it's a pyrrhic victory uh, in that in that it sacrifices the very thing that is so deeply valued by it destroys you <laughs> by yeah and other agents as well you know the the very thing that we're protecting I think he doesn't go as far as to say that but but yeah but the that very thing nice. that defines you as a moral person yeah and and that defines others so one helpful way of thinking about George and Jim also. The question for that interests Williams isn't so much like, you know, what's the right thing to do here as much as the fact that there's something wrong with utilitarianism in that in both cases they think it's obviously the right thing to do. Right. Uh, so even in the Jim <laughs> case right. where Williams sides with the utilitarian ultimately, he still thinks the way they're thinking about it – it, that there's something deeply wrong about it because yeah. it just seems like a no-brainer, you know? Like maybe you could think about it, Jim could think about whether, you know, his psychological difficulties will outweigh... But at a certain point, he has to just be honest with himself and say, look, that's just not 19 people, 19 families, you yeah. know, they get to see their father and and and, and husband and... 
you know, brother and sister and all that, like, that's just, I can't let that influence this decision. And then with George, it's also obvious. Like, there's there's no downside to this except for its effects on George, but those can't possibly outweigh the effects of him not doing it. It's, it's how the agent would deliberate about these cases, if, if you're a utilitarian, that that Williams thinks exposes its fundamental flaw. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can you can arrive at the same answer being a non-utilitarian, right? And this this extra goes to show you that being a non-consequentialist doesn't commit you to ignoring of consequences, right? It's just different features of a situation will factor into what you think the moral the morally right thing to do. And the idea, I mean, I, I don't know if we stress this enough that you would be forced to disregard your deepest moral feelings whenever they went against the utilitarian calculus. I don't know if it's incoherent, but there's some sort of deep, perhaps fatal flaw with that idea that because these feelings are part of who you are as a moral being in the first place, and if you're not a moral being, then you wouldn't be a utilitarian because it is a moral theory it's a moral perspective he he talks about you know george you have to imagine this is a person that has his own projects these values these attitudes these beliefs um the projects what we think constitutes a good life a successful life a flourishing life and what utilitarianism is demanding a of him at that moment is to just abandon all of that, right? He says, point is that the agent is identified with his actions as flowing from projects or attitude which he takes seriously at the deepest level as what his life is about. It is absurd to demand of such a man when the sums come in from the utility network which the projects of others have in part determined that he should just step aside from his own project and decision and acknowledge the decision which the utilitarian calculation requires. It is to alienate him in a real sense from his actions and the source of his actions in his own convictions. It is to make him a channel between the input of everyone else's projects, including his own, and uh, and an output of optimistic decision. But this is to neglect the extent to which his projects and his decisions have to be seen as the actions and decisions which flow from the projects and attitudes with which he is most closely identified. It is thus, in the most literal sense, an attack on his integrity. That's right. So, And I, I think it's, it's critical to understand that this follows directly from the principle of negative responsibility. That is, in as far as utilitarianism does not care what the source of causality is, as long as you're in the causal nexus, what can happen is that you get caught up solely by the actions of others, other agents or other, like, features of the world, other causes, non-agentic causes in the world, um, but especially of other agents that all of a sudden mean that the right thing for you to do is something that you have developed your life such that you would never choose to do. Right. right? You, you have valued, right. You've, you say value the struggle for women's rights 
Um, you have, it's, it's part of your cause to, to fight for equality. Um, and now through zero fault of your own, you're placed in a situation where what you have to do is uh, treat some women extraordinarily horribly in order that the consequences to most women be better. Um, and- right, this was Harvey Weinstein. He had to <laughs> s- sexually abuse all those women to raise a consciousness and awareness. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no wonder so many philosophers engage in that kind of behavior. It's, it's, the, it's, that, it's that feature of utilitarianism that puts people in this predicament that, is, it, that undermines um, their, their moral integrity. And I mean, here's, here's where I'm still not so clear. I mean, there is a point at which he says, well, like a, a utilitarian might very well say, well, fuck integrity. Like, why do you care so much about this cohesion of, of, of the person and their, their identity as a moral agent and in their projects and their projects? This is where I'm, maybe you can help help me out understanding why he thinks this is this is a defeating um uh point like why why not just bite the bullet like utilitarians utilitarians have to bite the bullet for all sorts of things why not just bite the bullet here here is one possible answer it's the one i alluded to at the end of my original sort of introduction mm-hmm. is that if if you're going to bite the bullet there has to be a you that's biting yes. the bullet. There has to be a moral you, and that's what utilitarianism is attacking. It's it's fracturing you as a moral agent to the degree that there's nothing left of you as a moral being to bite that bullet. Right, and he points to the to, in this flavor the par the paradox, which were you know there are what you might call first order sort of. Uh, desires that you have like to be fed to be satiated and and to to achieve pleasure and then you have so he calls those your first order like the things that you need to survive and as a human being and he says you have like all these other second order projects which are the what is the the the, the higher pleasures, as the utilitarians like to call them. Yeah. Um, he doesn't... That's a doesn't, mill, John Stewart mill. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> um, but utilitarianism, it seems as if what it slides, it slides into a view that, that what we should be doing is sacrificing these higher pleasures um, in order to make sure that everybody gets these first order pleasures. These first order projects, the, those basic human human needs um, that well, yeah. If if those higher ple- if sacrificing them would bring about a greater net total of 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 well being, however that's defined, I don't think, or I think the critique works whether the utilitarian sees the pleasures as bentham did as it's all just hedonistic or whether they separate the pleasures on various planes the critique works either way i think right yeah it so so it might i think that what he's he's pointing out the possibility that what's that what you're committed to is as a utilitarian is meeting the needs of the first order projects of others because they are in some way more fundamental but you could even just say like well 
getting somebody from from misery to normalcy is essentially taking care of their first order needs. And so that's what we should sacrifice. And this is all just to say that he thinks that the second order projects that we engage in are the ones that that make us into people who care about things like the pain and suffering of the world, like people who have the time to sit and talk about this stuff. And so it, it is self defeating to have a utilitarian view that means that nobody can really spend their time doing this stuff because they would be sacrificing through inaction or through this negative responsibility. They would be sacrificing their duty to uh, maximize the first order projects of everybody in the world. So that's a, I, that's a practical kind of consideration is, and this was, I guess, an empirical question to some degree, but to bring everybody up to a, right. a, a level of just not suffering, you might need to sacrifice higher order pleasures enough so that you didn't even care about utilitarianism or moral theories in the first place. Right. Um, this is the, and we didn't talk about like that. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, and he actually gives another case about like a really prejudiced majority yeah. having to kick out a minority that just bothers people. Um, and I, I, but this is really part of the squeamishness um, discussion where, again, you're supposed to disregard your feelings of squeamishness at booting out this minority just because the, the population is sufficiently prejudiced. I mean, to me, that's a little bit more in the first category of objections to utilitarians, kind of a reductio ad absurdum, or, at, at, you know, sort of at most, another example of why these squeamishness appeals just seem like they, go, they, they strike at the heart of who we take ourselves to be as, well, as moral people. I, I take it to be a different kind of example, because in that example, say, you know, there's like whatever there's a society of a million people and there's a thousand people that are just annoying and most people are actually made unhappy by their presence and the decision could be made to just wipe them out thus increasing everybody's level of happiness in the majority but killing uh, the minority that's one in which you are not convinced i think most people wouldn't be convinced that this is the right thing to do so they're not they don't have to squash their negative emotions in order to do the right thing as as in the case of jim and the indians um native south americans um (laughs) but but in fact this is i think what he's doing is pointing out to the impoverished notion of happiness that is often used by utilitarians that is if that is all you care about is happiness then you would have to commit to the view that the morally right thing to do would be to actually kill the minority population that's annoying everybody else. And he doesn't think that people think that. And so he thinks that happiness is a term that's used so flexibly so as to include things that, like, I don't think are right. Why else would you oppose as a utilitarian with a very sort of hedonistic view of happiness? Why would you oppose such an action? And he thinks if you do, it's because your notion of happiness isn't as base level and hedonistic as as you think. I guess I didn't see this example. I mean, you might be right. I didn't see this example as as speaking to that question. I saw it as speaking to the squeamishness. 
uh, it's in the context of the feelings and whether they're irrational or not. And I, um, yeah, I'm conflating it then with a point that he makes later on um, about about the impoverished notion of happiness. So he says, if we assume various quite plausible things. Even if the removal would be unpleasant for the minority, a utilitarian calculation might well end up favoring this step, especially if the minority were a rather small minority. Um, a utilitarian might find that conclusion embarrassing, and not merely because of its nature, but because of the grounds on which it is reached. Um, Just the idea that you're supposed to like take <laughs> into account the fact that the really prejudiced people are right. suffering by you know the presence of these people and you're supposed to just be like well that's just suffering we're supposed to treat all suffering yeah. as equal too you know yeah 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 and maybe this is a good uh, point to talk about what he th- what the the other common objection that he he tries to address which is the precedent effect if somebody does something like that it sets a precedent and then we would have everybody doing that so it's better to not do it and he rightfully points out, like, there's what precedent are we worried about? The precedent of doing the right thing, right? Like, right. Uh, <laughs> like, if it is, in fact, the right thing to do, then there's no bad. The only bad precedent that you're worried about is that people will misunderstand how you arrived at that decision and misapply it in the future, at which point you would just say, no, no, that's not the way you're supposed to apply utilitarianism. Right. The features of this situation were such that it was the right thing to do. The features of your situation are the wrong ones. And in fact, it betrays your view that that you're not a utilitarian to even call it a bad precedent. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? Like, you know. And that's why I'm struck by the fact that a lot of people who say they're utilitarian who are not philosophers by training are just yeah. wrong about what they believe. Like they, they're just mistaken. Can I yeah. give one possible response to the integrity objection. It's a real-life potential counterexample. So you know this guy, William McCaskill? Yeah, we often get get requests to have him on uh, our podcast, which, yeah. He's the so leader you know of the, his story? He's the, the leader of the effective altruism movement. Um, I don't so think he, I do. His story is, it's, it's actually pretty relevant. So as, as I understand it, and I think this is him, he was a philosophy PhD, was going to become a professor in philosophy, became convinced by Singer's arguments. And because he was convinced by Singer's arguments, he realized, wait a minute, like, it's not going to be, it's not going to bring about the best consequences if I become a philosophy professor. So he went into Wall Street and became an investment banker, made a shitload of money, started the, you know, it was... Uh, one of the the key people in starting the effective altruism movement. I guess the reason why he's he's so relevant is he literally changed projects once he came across a moral view that he thought was right, right. and did something that presumably he wasn't invested in becoming a uh, or that's not something that he thought he wanted to do with his life become an investment banker but he just thought he just he ran the numbers and he realized wait if i make 500 million dollars or whatever and i give 40 percent of that to charity that's way better than if i'm a philosophy professor and not only that he seems like he's probably you know he did the calculations correctly he's yeah you know, foundational in the effective altruism movement, which has 
undeniably brought about greater good than if it didn't exist. Um, yeah. And yet I'm, he seems like he's just a, like, I don't know, maybe we should have him on the podcast and, and try to figure out if he's a real person or not. Or just <laughs> like, a, like his integrity is like he's a, actually three people. Um, yeah, right. uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, same with Peter Singer, right? Like I, I have deep respect for Will McCaskill and Peter Singer, and I don't think that their integrity has suffered. I, I, but Peter Singer seemed like he was like that from the beginning. I don't know. But I don't, I, I don't know what he was he's like born. as a as he's a, kid, a counter. Example to your nobody's born a util turn. Um, I think that so now McCaskill and Singer probably have very different views. I don't think that um, that utilitarianism specifically as an ethical doctrine is required for a desire to shift one's priority to make to 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 make charitable donations more effective or to pick to select the things that would be that would maximize the the donation money i think that it is it's not inconsistent at all with a view that just says like consequences matter and and sometimes it is stupid to waste a ton of resources on something that will make more of a difference i know that he in fact is motivated by utilitarian uh considerations I just think that what what Williams and other criticisms of utilitarianism hold are that I, w- the way in which they seem right to me is that utilitarianism as a decision guide is not a very good one. Here's one way to put it. I really believe that the point of morality is to make the world a better place. But that's not what utilitarianism means. What utilitarianism means is having these specific guides to action that are willing that we're in which you're willing to do the calculations that are solely based on maximizing happiness in the way that you, in the way that you define happiness. And I think that that, if everybody were that, it would be a horribly (laughs) scary world to live in. I think people would actually have this lack of integrity, but I also think that people would be making tons and tons of mistakes. But I mean, whether they make mistakes or not is definitely not uh, Williams's point. No, it is not at all. Right. I his, mean, he really thinks great. what it's doing is just fracturing our identity. Yeah. And I think the re- so that's why also, I brought up the thinks- McCaskill. Yeah. Uh, also- Counter example is it doesn't seem to have fractured his identity. I mean. My, if, yes. if to just channel Williams' response for a second, I might say, okay, there might be a handful of William McCaskills out there who were probably pretty committed, whether they knew it or not, had, had utilitarian convictions in the first place and then found in Singer and Mill and Sidgwick uh, like a good articulation of them. But for most people, we are this mix. And it's when you're the mix of consequentialist and non-consequentialist deep moral convictions that you can't just give yourself up entirely to the utilitarian view without sort of tearing yourself apart. Right. And, and, you know, one, maybe one way to get to, to link this to, to Williams's argument is that, you know, McCaskill is somebody who has built this second order project that is very consistent with utilitarianism. But McCaskill's very project assumes 
that not everybody will be able that not everybody can do this even right so so he relies on the fact that some people have stayed in wall street and are generating millions and billions of dollars in revenues in order for his projects to actually get off the ground if they were also following the strict tenets of utilitarianism, they might never get their own Wall Street projects off the ground to begin with. And thus the world would be a worse place, leading to a paradox, right? They would actually, what Will McCaskill did is only possible because other people have spent their entire life building financial institutions. That's true. I mean, and I think you're right that there is something paradoxical about that. I don't think it's a paradox that Williams is, is identifying. I think his paradox is more at the individual level, less at the it's impossible to actually bring about uh, an optimal world if everybody is trying to be optimizers. That's I don't take I don't take to be his point. I take to his point to be it's impossible to live as a utilitarian if you are at least partial if you're defined at least partially by non-utilitarian conviction. I think that it is it it is that the two are connected. I think that Williams's critique is is saying look, people genuinely uh, become happy engaging in these second order projects. And the utilitarian requirements would not allow them to do that. All I'm saying is that in some cases, those people end up being Wall Street magnets and generating all this money. Right. Right. No, I, I, I get your point. And it's related to Williams's point in that it's 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 their project. You know, right. I have friends who it's their project. It's their life's project to start their own investment bank and to be successful and to run a career and they're good people they give you know they give because of their position they give they're right. able to give more to charity than i am and and yes if if everybody tried to optimize people like that wouldn't exist we wouldn't have a world in which that is an any kind of second order project is 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 the acceptable one right yeah. it would always be the wrong thing to do yeah, um, unless you are convinced that you ran the numbers, and in this case, it's actually the right thing to do. But that would almost never be the case. I'm not. I am not disputing what you're saying, at, yeah, except yeah, I, as a sort of is interpretive yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, it's not his. His point wasn't to say that it falls apart at the societal level. Like yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Williams's critique is different than just the like it's too hard to be a, a consequentialist, right? That's a, that's a different style of critique. It's oh, one yeah. that he mentions. For me, the deepest point, the one that changed how I thought about this debate, is the squeamishness stuff. Like the idea about how you are supposed to regard, how utilitarian demands that you regard your moral feelings, your deepest moral feelings, I think is a kind of a profound point. I agree. One that I I think should be discussed a bit more when talking about the emotional responses to... Yes, in your in your business, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, we Maybe we do. should have William McCaskill on. Yeah, like, or actually, we could at least put that as one of our five Patreon finalists if he'll agree to come. Uh, you know, he'll have to run the numbers, I guess, and decide my, whether that <laughs> is an optimistic decision for the, to come on no, the Very my, Bad Wizards podcast. But. My student Lance Bush, uh, who is is 
involved in the effective altruism movement uh, has many times told me to have him on. And I don't know why we haven't, I think. He was the person that, as I was reading the end of this essay, I, I thought, wait a minute, but what about that? You know, because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. his life story, it's not like George exactly, but it's a little like George, if you consider working for Wall Street to be like working <laughs> in right. the chemical and biological weapons Actually, I uh, wonder industry. if that matters. I wonder, I wonder if, if it would be possible for him to have engaged in blatantly unethical behaviors during his time at Wall Street. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's a good question. We should ask him that. Yeah. All right. Fortunately, I'm off the hook because I could not have succeeded in the financial industry. So <laughs> what are you talking about? It, it's it, in, it it's would... in your blood. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm a bad Jew when it comes to, to making money. Uh, that, is, that's, that is really sad. That is really sad. It is. It's, a, it's the most damning thing I can say about myself. A, it's like being Asian and bad at math. Exactly. Um, and we could continue with that, but we won't because you SJWs are out there. Stay, stay awake. Hold on, hold on. I have something to read. Black Lives Matter. All right. <laughs> no. All right. Are you sure you pronounced that right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, next time we have Lori Santos on That's the right. podcast to talk about the good life. Yeah, and then Sean Nichols, probably after that, assuming we can get the tech stuff on. And if you're in San Antonio, send us an email. The